Hey everyone, welcome back to Archives and Futures, a podcast for future generations. Once again, I'm your host, Ivan Lozano, and welcome to the last episode of the first season. Thank you so much for your support. Obviously, thank you to all of the artists that came in and had a great conversation with me. And we're going to be taking a little break so we can find some funding for season two, and we hope to be back by the second half of the year. So stay tuned. Follow us on Instagram, SoundCloud, and Facebook at Archives and Futures, one word. Subscribe and share. Give us a five-star rating. Archives plus Futures on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And hey, if you're in Chicago next week for the College Arts Association Conference, I'm going to be presenting as Archives and Futures in the panel Latinx Archives, Art, Counter Histories, and Critical Speculation with Madison Treese and Nicole Marroquin. And we will be in a conversation moderated by Diana Ledesma and Tamara Becerra Valdez, who we're interviewing this week. And that's happening on February 14th at 6 p.m. And it's pay-as-you-wish day, so you don't have to register for the CAA. Just come and listen to us talk about archives. Thank you for listening again, and let's get started with the interview. Hello, this is Tamara Valdez, also known as Tamara Valdez, for those who uh, non-Spanish speakers. Uh -huh. <laughs> Hi, thank you How's for having me. Welcome. <laughs> and what about the Becerra part? Do you sometimes put that in, there, that in there and sometimes not? Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, but Becerra is a family name. So it. um, it's kind of been this name that I've tried to bring back into my self through just like genealogical work yeah. and my last name being my father's last name which is kind of strange and estranged <laughs> so I'm yeah I think my name is something that I'm trying to build off of um some kind of loss that's happened you know out of different, different that's an interesting history. point and something I can really relate to also as like a fellow Tejano there is <laughs> so much like for like just lost history about about absolutely yeah absolutely I mean um you know it wasn't until I guess maybe 12 years ago my aunt got married and at the same time she was preparing her her wedding she was doing family history work yeah and she found um our family archives that went back almost 10 generations oh wow and so in that process, she was, she changed the place that she was going to get married. And so she wanted to get married in La Bahia in Goliad, Texas. And it's the same chapel in which our family has been wow. associated with. And our family house was there. And yeah, it was an amazing kind of like um, retaking, you know, and yeah. of our family history. And ever since then, I've really thought about um, including that history in my name. And so nice. Becerra is something that I've added. Yeah. That's so incredible. I mean, in, in, in my family, some of the stories are just basically like around like war and poverty in Texas and and the world wars, basically, but also like the Porfiriato and like the Mexican Revolution, like they go way back too. Um, and just like so many of the stories are like, and then your great uncle murdered his wife and then disappeared or and then they, he was killed by the army or then like died an alcoholic on a fucking park bench. Like, those kinds of stories are everywhere in my Texas yeah. family. There's so much pain and loss and death. And, <clears throat> and so much, so many decisions that had to be made out yeah. of survival. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I was, ta I was talking to a friend and we were um, talking about her mother's Im immigration story and 
um, traveling through the desert and I reflected on how I don't have that reflection for my family, like this close, near immigrant story. And I think it's something that I've also been reflecting more on in Chicago. Yeah. For sure. Because a lot of friends' families have this immigrant story so close, like first, second generation. Um, And I notice this so much through food. Yes. So How much. so? Maybe, yeah, go I, into detail. Okay, fried chicken. Okay. <laughs> fried chicken where, you know, this is a food that my family loves to make. My yeah. wala loves to make fried chicken, right. okra, mac and cheese. But, of course, there's enchiladas that are next to it, too, Oof. you know? And yeah. so you're like, oh, this mix of, like, foods. And and I guess, I mean, I, I think that there's something about, like, that inclusion of this, like, you know, diner food or this yeah. like American food um, in connection with tacos and enchiladas. And you're just like kind of combining them too. And it, it's it's really interesting. And I think a lot of my friends here are surprised by it. But Absolutely. And that's that that's a real thing. So like to share, like my dad's family is from Texas, um, from Laredo, from the Valley, from San Antonio. My dad was born in Brownsville. My grandfather was born in San Isidro. Uh, okay <laughs> so they're from that yeah so yeah so that's where they come from that's where that side comes from and from my grandmother's side on my dad's side it's from Nuevo Laredo so it's like still the same fucking thing you know some of them are from one side some of them are from the other but they never emigrated my immigration story or immigration is that my mm-hmm. dad and his family moved to Mexico and then I moved back to the United States so that's my oh, story that's so it's very yeah. different because yeah it's not sort of the typical Latino immigration story or Mexican no. immigration story because I was American before America was there, right? Yeah, absolutely. We were there before then. And then, like, I had to leave and then come back. But it's it's still, like, an immigrant story, but it's it's different. Latino, Tejanos are so different. And Tejanos absolutely. are their own culture. I think, I think that they're... That, yeah, I want to talk about that more. Yeah. Because I feel like Tejanos have... I mean, okay, so my friend Monica yeah. came to visit. And she's a, she's a poet from, from Austin, Texas. And... I love her poetry. It's what's her last name? Let's give her a shout out. Uh, Teresa Ortiz. Teresa Ortiz, shout out. To yeah, Teresa. Monica. <laughs> hey, <laughs> hey, girl. <laughs> um, no, but her, her poetry is grit. There's grit. There's love. There's loss. There's despair. But there's also this perseverance yeah. that just feels different. And I'm not sure exactly what that like the nuances of that, but. Um, I don't know. It's, it's even in the way that I think the Hanos carry themselves. There's yeah. something a little, I mean, for instance, I show up to my truck today, which I think is like, everyone's, everyone kind of makes fun of me of like, oh, of course, Tamara has his truck and she's from Texas or whatever. But, but also it's like necessity right. or it's utility yeah. or it's practical. And I feel like I want to think that maybe more Tejanos have this practical sensibility but i could be wrong i don't know i just like to think these things yeah i also think it's such a hybrid hybrid identity but it's an interesting idea of a hybrid identity because i don't know if this happens in your family but i remember growing up like my aunts and 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 cousins like one of the things that they would do every year were these sort of like like in my head now i call them like non-denominational native american pageants where it's like there was still like the like i have no idea what fucking tribe it was because that is that information is lost but they still like made these basically Native American outfits. And there was this pageant for like quinceañeras or like a debutante kind of thing. And there's like so many links also, I feel, between like Native Americans in Texas and like Tejanos. And it's the same thing. You know, it's like we're we're too close. It's the same thing in a way. 
it's too close. There's also such a merge. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I yeah, and I think that there's there there is something particular about living so close to Mexico that yeah. you, um, you kind of, I mean, well, well, for instance, like we always just called ourselves Mexican. Yeah, you were you were the Mexican girls that or went to the, the private school. Yeah. yeah. And here, it, or maybe it was like going into college where I started to really think, Oh, Mexican. Am I Mexican American? Am I Tejana? Am I Chicana? Am I, how do I kind of identify myself? Yeah. And, um, but I just remember growing up, it was like, that was the Mexican neighborhood. I lived in the Mexican neighborhood and yeah. I lived in Molina. It was like, there wasn't a, um, an opportunity to say I'm Mexican American or I want to choose that I'm a Chicano or right, what? yeah, it was just what. You, and then even like in the food, when you talked about that, like I think of like Native American cuisine and like fry bread. That's like enchiladas, you know. It's like a fucking yes. fried tortilla or like the the tamales de, de venado or whatever. It's mm-hmm. like it's the same yeah, foods in the way, you know. It's like Tex Mex is so similar to a lot of those Native American foods because it's about like what do you eat in the desert? Mm-hmm. Because we were there too together, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's interesting too because. At least in my family, it seemed to be a real defense mechanism, being able, or survival mechanism is a better word, being able to forget those histories. Mm, like, yeah. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. I mean, people in te- Texas don't speak Spanglish that often. What do you think that they speak instead? Well, I think, that, you... I think that, well, I don't know if this was your experience, but like I noticed that you and I don't have much of a of like quote unquote an accent. And I oh, see that in yes. Texas, it's like a okay. real survival mechanism, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, don't mix them because then they're going to think that you're, there's this weird like anti-Mexicanness in, in like Tejanos. Yeah. I mean, I think, I remember my, my Wella would say, you know, she wanted us to speak so well. She wanted us to have the best education and she never wanted us to, um, you know, for instance, so our family had um, tamale restaurants all throughout, like in Corpus oh, Christi. Nice. Tamaleras from my great grandmother's side. And, you know, um, but my, I remember my grandmother saying tamales. Yeah. And, you know, the, the customer was, wanted the tamales. So that's how we say them. But then when we're in this like group of women that are all making tamales, it's like, this is where it was the safe space. Right. And in this process, I think of my grandparents you know, having restaurants, trying to produce some kind of stability for us financially in that kind of search. They also wanted us to not have an accent. Yeah. You know, and I think, I don't know. I mean, I I understand that like sentimentality of like wanting to protect because it really was. I mean, in Texas, it was severe. Literally survival. Yeah. It was severe when you start thinking about that history and especially with like my grandmother's, I mean, my grandmother's 81 and that era of her growing up was rough. Yeah. Um, I even think about her reflecting on like Irma versus Irma. It's just, I don't know. It's a really, it's something I process kind of often. Yeah. It's, it's about a lot of, it's a lot to process. And, um, but, and also like my friends in Chicago, I feel like are encouraging of this, like, uh, kind of grabbing back what's been lost, yeah. you know? And yeah. I think that there's some, uh, there's some courage here that I really admire. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that Chicago is a very, I mean, I just sort of saw some like article where it was like, well, this is one of like the friendliest cities to immigrants or something, but I don't know if this was similar to you, but I never felt able to really kind of 
publicly claim my roots until I really got to Chicago. Like in Texas, that didn't seem like a possibility. I agree. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I feel like, um, you know, when I was in grad school, I thought a lot about these forms of like public intimacy that I had with just strangers that felt like someone I knew from home. Mm. And at one point, I just started to try to find them, find like qualities of this person that felt like we were we were kin or we were recognizable to each other. Yeah. And and often there were homeless people. They were homeless people oh, wow. that were that had stopped in Texas that, oh, I know where you're from. This is I stopped there on the way to, to Chicago. But this like common thread of remembering like what the air felt like or the skyline sky yeah and i think that's such a beautiful kind of like moment to share with someone when they're kind of on their own journey and that journey is like very unpredictable without home without stay and but to share this like really intimate moment with these people was really something that you know that it was always like triggered by like oh they have this hat on or this like nice. jersey or something. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's true. There are so many people in Chicago, so many Latinos in Chicago that that they go through Texas in some way or another at some point in their families. There's so many of them. Um, so yeah, homeless or not, I mean like this yeah. is like this was their end point. Absolutely. And yeah. they've gone through this place or uh, through Texas and then on their way to here. And I think like that's or they're you know there's so many stories of like cousins staying in Texas yep. and then continuing on here and. Yeah. It's interesting too. I was part of this show called Monarchs that uh, Risa Paleo curated. Uh, but yeah, it was yeah. that was basically the idea <laughs> was you know the, those paths of, of commerce, yeah, and of like the migration of the monarch butterflies are also the paths of of of, of, of Mexicans and and South Americans and Latinos just kind of moving north to find opportunities, right? And uh, they got to Chicago when the railroad was built between exactly. Texas and Chicago. Yeah, man, such a beautiful, powerful concept yeah. for a show. Yeah, it was, it was such a good show. Actually, it was just uh, the anniversary of that show, like two-year anniversary, like a couple of days ago. So that's that was like a moment that popped up on the internet for me. So good. Um, so maybe tell us, how did you get into making art in Texas? What, were your, what was your experience in Texas sort of coming into yourself and sort of thinking like, this is something I want to do? Mm. Because um, let's back up. I don't think we've mentioned. Where are you from in Texas? You mentioned Corpus Christi. <laughs> I'm from Corpus Christi, born and raised. Um, my family's been there, still there. They've been there for like like six generations. Oh, wow, yeah. Originally from Beeville, Texas, small town. Uh, and then before that, Goliath. But um, yeah, you know, I... Where do I start? Because I, I left, I graduated high school from this small private school in Corpus Christi. And I took off to San Antonio and I just was like, I got to get out of this town. I feel suffocated here. I need to move on. So I took my car, my things, and I moved to San Antonio. And I I attended Incarnate Word, the University of Incarnate Uh Word. Yeah. And a bunch of people who went there. Yeah. Okay. I, and I actually pursued design. Okay. And, one of my professors was tired of me drawing all of the concepts I was thinking about. (laughs) So so they encouraged me to take an art class. And so I had a professor, Miguel Cortinas, who I hope will listen to this. This is going to be great. Um, uh, He, he just encouraged me to apply to the university of Texas at Austin. Nice. 
And he was like, you should pursue some, you should pursue a program that has a lot more. Um, let me help you with your application. Because also Incarnate is really conservative. It was very conservative. Yeah. yeah. And so I applied, I got in, I got into the art program. Nice. And I was in shock when I went into art school. Uh-huh. I had no idea who these artists were. I had no idea what these concepts were, these genres, this history. And I remember going to this, I mean, the library there was wonderful. Oh, I and love that I library. just like was, you know, going through books, so oh. many pages, just trying to learn as much as I could and who I related to. Yeah. And that was difficult. And um, who was my professor? John Stoney. John oh, I Stoney. I love John Stoney. His work is great. Yeah. John Stoney was so fantastic. Um, he was a sculpture professor there. And um, he asked me if I had taken an anthropology class. And I said, no, what do I do there? <laughs> and um, I took an anthropology class and I ended up taking a course with um, Craig Campbell, who is a visual anthropologist there. And I took a class called The Photographic Image. Oh, wow. And it completely blew open what my idea of what art could be yeah. and how it was being discussed in this discipline versus the art school. And I think I was a bit of a loner a little bit through yeah. the art school because I think some of the ideas I was concerned with, I I wanted to talk about them with my anthropology colleagues and kind of move through these kinds of ideas a little bit more. Um, I didn't want to think about the formal aesthetics of them. Okay. I wanted to think about what was like meaningful in this like search and discovery and why think about it visually and versus writing, you know, yeah. you know, um, these essays or something like that. But, um, yeah, so I ended up pursuing both, uh, art and anthropology. And what a place to do it. I mean, UT, the, 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 the Latin American studies library, there's it's number the one in the world. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. It's incredible. It's the largest. And the Benson. So yeah, the Benson. Yeah. it was this amazing yeah, resource. Yeah. The library system at UT. Oh my God. Oh my God. It's incredible. It's unbelievable. Like, and now I think they have a Mexican-American studies uh, center. I think so, yeah. Now. Yeah. Um, so I just had all these professors that were like really influential for me to think more about what I wanted art to do. Yeah. Or what it could be or how it could um, serve or, or something like that. Um, but I graduated in 2008 mm -hmm. and it was... A very bad time to try to look yeah. for work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, that's when I started grad school. That's when I was like, fuck it. I guess I'll go to grad school. Yeah, isn't grad school yeah. sometimes just like, I guess I'm going to do this I guess it's so now. that I got to survive yeah. for a little bit? Um, How did they take the, the the investigations that you were doing in the, um, in the UT art school? I think it was very separate. I found that my interest in identity was not as... Um, it couldn't be discussed. Yeah. And honestly, I can't really remember too many Latinos that were around me, except Rose uh, Salceda, yeah. who's now, um, I think she's teaching in California. She's a PhD. Yeah, doctor. but I don't think there were any Latinos. I mean, there was Carlos Rosales Silva was there as an undergrad. Yeah, Carlos Shout was out to there. Lolo. Hey, Carlos. Yeah, Carlos was there. Oh, Andrea Bonin. Yeah, Andrea Bonin was there. Oh, and then man. Josh Rios was at, uh, but he wasn't in the art school. I mean, 
Yeah, I feel Josh like Josh was at OK Mountain and he'd gone to St. Ed's. True, yeah. true. I feel like I didn't meet a lot of these people until after I left school. Um, but yeah, so there was like few people around me. Um, but I got really interested in like technical aspects yeah. of making work, okay. like metalsmithing, sculpture, nice. uh, woodworking. Um, but when it came to like producing these concepts and things, I was just like, no, I just want to make something yeah. and get become very mastered at that. Um, so that's what art school was for me in the beginning. And then 10 years went by and I finally came to grad school here at UIC. What was that process like in those 10 years? Because, uh, <laughs> I mean, Crazy I'm really, yeah, it's, it's, Crazy it's, it's interesting to me how people start to become comfortable with their work or their practice. What was that like for you? And how, how did that feel in, as an evolution, I guess? Man, the evolution has been this and that and here and yeah. there. But, um, you know, I ended up pursuing... So I ended up working at the Center for Folk Life and Cultural Heritage nice. in D.C. And it's, um, it's part of the Smithsonian Institution. And we were working on the Mexico Smithsonian Folk Life Festival. And Olivia Calaval was my supervisor and who was the curator in charge of this kind of living exhibition. And so the whole concept around this project was trying to give the public a more broad understanding of who Mexicans were and are and what's this, the evolution of their traditions and today and I'm like salivating at that. I'm like, oh my God, that's so great. It was so, it was so beautiful. And I, you know, I worked with her so closely and our team was so incredible and considerate of these guests, Mm. you know, everyone making thoughtful choices about how they wanted to be represented. Um, And there was even so many, like, you know, these small decisions of like, well, the platform shouldn't be too high from the ground that you know nice. we want to have these kinds of like equal sensibilities yeah. and um and it felt like you were in a mercado you were like walking around and listening to music here and there best and places buying... in the world best places in the, the tianguis oh and... my god <laughs> my mom and my sisters were just in mexico this last week and they kept telling me like we're in san juan de dios we're in this mercado we're in that mercado and i was just like oh man i'm so jealous <laughs> me too <laughs> yeah so i mean i i think that experience in dc of thinking about cultural heritage on display Mm -hmm. and how you write about a living tradition, um, the concern of its loss, and then also being close to these other, you know, cultural workers um, that were concerned, say, like Smithsonian folkways. Yeah. Who, like, want to preserve music at all costs. You know, like, they are so concerned about potential loss. And heritage marks the sign of loss, right? When we start thinking about the heritage and um, what we've left behind or what we've lost, I think they're so concerned about that. And this place had a really large effect on me of thinking about um, what's possible and what's capable in in um, curation and display, and but also just in like forms of documentation. And I started to kind of play around with these ideas over this span of time, you know, working in Guatemala, working in D.C. I worked in Texas for a while, um, 
continued working in Mississippi, all kind of concerning like folk life and cultural heritage and things like that. Um, and then it wasn't until I moved to Mexico that I started to reflect on my position mm. and how I, what, what was my place in society? And I think something about being in Mexico City was noticing these like enclaves of people and the ways that they function and um, the ways that they communicate and the peripheral, the periferico, and like what happens there, what happens in the mountains, what happens in Centro, what ha you know, and I started to really think about society and, yeah. and people and, um, and then this kind of care that happens within these communities. And so how can I, as an artist with the liberties and freedoms that I have to, um, you know, document this or interview or reflect on it, um, or even just like make sculptural forms that, um, are some kind of recording or some kind right. of documentation in, in like a physical form. But yeah, so the, the journey has been like expansive and strange at times, but yeah, it's, you've been everywhere. It's, or a bunch of places. Yeah, and it, but it's always, I think there's always a concern of people in my work. And um, and I think, yeah, coming to grad school was like trying to put all of this together, which was an experience, you know, being in grad school. That's interesting because before we started the recording, we talked about how um, elusive you are online, to put it somehow. Um, but one of the <laughs> things that I did sort of notice is that a lot of the things that you have online so are, are these... Um, Recordings of very ephemeral or sublime or easily kind of passed over moments mm -hmm. that are somehow inscribed in in in, in cement or um, yeah. on a window or like graffiti or something. But it's this recollection of small moments that I mm -hmm. thought was really kind of beautiful. So how how did that sort of need to to mark that impermanence come about, or, or how did you start noticing those things? Is it similar in different places you've been, or different? I started to notice them more specifically in Mexico because I started to notice that one, one particular moment was um, noticing how we all walked through rubble mm. and the rubble was just as much as a character as we were in the street and what became salvageable and yeah. um, who would leave their... Um, who would kind of pile up their rocks to the side and these kinds of funny, like very, you know, particular, uh, habits, like human habits that I think were, I don't know, they were gentle, they were humble, they were honest. And I just, I, I think I was always reflecting on this would never happen in the U S yeah, no, that is very true. And I think that, that that's something that maybe I have really kind of internalized having grown up in, in, in Guadalajara. But yeah, in Mexico, in big cities in Mexico, it's like the past is sort of like a crust on top of everything. That, and you sort of like build on top of that crust. But it's an accumulation of the past. And it's mm -hmm. all these layers. Like in Mexico City, it's also so visible. If you go to like going back to like Mercados or even like uh, the sort of uh, um, like churches or everything like there's going to be like a statue inside the, 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 the wood of like another statue and that statue had this other history. So 
there's a real history to to the materials and to the objects and to yeah the the, the construction of things. And I think if you look closely, sometimes you see the maker's signature, yes. which I think is like yes, there was this moment where that person felt that they were important to this work, and I and I love that. You yeah. know, I I think that there's something in connection to that kind of gesture to saying, my name's Neno and I lived here, and I'm going to write my name in the sidewalk, and. So then I started to think about archaeology and uh, archaeology of the contemporary. So if archaeologists are thinking about recording the past because it's deemed recordable and yeah. important, why aren't these people important? Especially in a place... Hold on, let me just... Yes. Because that's such a good fucking point. It's like, you know, like history isn't just for like the big classes. It's like, we're like, we can do that too. Absolutely. It's important for us and to it... claim that space and that history. Yeah. And I think when I... So I just had begun, in the beginning of this like interest in writing in concrete, I was pouring water over the names mm-hmm. so that they would appear and mm. they would be visible at, on a walkway. Yeah. And that was very like a subtle thing and a subtle gesture. And then when I, I came into grad school in the fall of 2017 and I ended up living right outside of this block at Cullerton and Troop. Okay. Yeah, and I know. there was like dozens yeah. of names in the concrete. And I was like, I have to, I'm going to throw this giant sheet of paper out and I'm going to sit here and wow. record all of them. And cause I, you know, I was, I was thinking like, what neighborhood am I in? What, what is the story with this place? So I started to talk to my neighbors a little bit. And one of my neighbors in particular, who I met after one of these large rubbings that I had done, his name was Inocente. And he, I think, the, the behavior in which like I'm on the ground, I'm doing this labor, he's in this chair with his daughter and he's telling me stories. I think something happened in that time where it was like, yeah, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a little bit more, you know, like you're doing the yeah. work for this. Yeah. And I think I started to learn that this kind of, um, this behavior, uh, garnered trust. Yeah. You know, and I think, um, you know, his stories telling me about the ways in which he had to walk in the neighborhood that were different than mine. And I started to ask him more like, so what, what's the story with this? Or who's Neno? Who's Negro? Who's these, you know, and he started to tell me so many stories about these people. And I think, okay, so if an archaeologist were to come here, how, how does he go or how do they go about approaching this site yeah. or this place? And I think that these, there's some kind of approaches and care and empathy and what I call like cultural yielding, you know, like we have to yield to listen to these stories. We have to like take a moment and, or do a large rubbing on a sidewalk and yield. And in order to be entrusted in these histories that I think are really vulnerable in a place like Pilsen, where when I lived at Cullerton and Troop, there were three new buildings on my block. And they had all been demolished. Yeah. And what happens, right? You get a new slab of concrete. And I mean, I know this can seem like, okay, maybe that's a little dramatic. Like, okay. But it's like, no, why couldn't this slab of concrete be preserved? Right. Why not? Absolutely. I just want to be told, tell me why not. And if you don't have a reason, then I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing. Yeah. That's an interesting point in Chicago and specifically like, Talking about Pilsen and Pilsen and the erasure of that memory when gentrification happens, like a couple of days ago, you probably heard about this, but at the 18th Street stop, which is covered in beautiful murals, yeah, 
They just fucking painted it over them for no reason. The CTA had no like no reason why they just sort of decided to do so. And now they're saying they're going to put them back or something. But how do you put those memories back? How do you put that history back? And Pilsen is full of incredible murals. Yeah, um, and, a, and an apology is not good enough. An apology is not good there enough. There should have been a discussion before then to say, hey, this is actually... Like, these murals are actually historical. It's a cultural violence, yeah. Absolutely. It's completely a violence against us, you know, in, in, in literally whitewashing our history or the history of this place that includes us. And also, I wanted to mention that, you know, Pilsen has such a, um extensive gang history. Yeah. That even these rubbings and these writings and concrete, they also mark the humanity of these people that yeah. had made the choices they made in their lives to pursue these kinds of lifestyles, but that also they they are human and they all have these kinds of interests in not wanting to be forgotten, which I think is really powerful. And I, I wanted to attempt to challenge that idea of what Pilsen neighborhood was and, you know, that there are actually, there's much more humanity to these former gang members or even those that have passed away, you know? Yeah. And it, you can't really absolutely blame them because like, what are the options that you, that these people had? You know, you didn't have options, you know, it's sort of like in Mexico, you know, people mm-hmm. end up being sicarios or joining like the narcos because they don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. There's no options. You starve or you do this. Yeah. I think, um, the murals at the CTA is another like, it's like another form of, um, what did you say? Like violence, cultural, cultural violence. Cultural yeah. violence. Yeah. That in some ways that you think that there are people looking out for you in these kinds of forms of government that say that they're looking out for you, but they're actually And I also not. think that that stop was such a like... Oh, it's so indicative it of was the such neighborhood. An, exactly. It's such an indication of the neighborhood. And it was just this like very literal... It was a Violence. cultural site. Culture, yeah, it was a cultural Absolutely. site. It, you know, it was, it, was a, it was an element of pride. Like when I lived in Pilsen or when I got to Chicago, like going there, it's like, oh, I feel like this is a safe space for me. It's like, I, you know, through this color and through these paintings mm-hmm. and these ideas and everything, I feel like this is somewhere that I can be. Mm-hmm. And um, especially if you think of like that being a portal to like the rest of the city or the sort of the place where they leave their home and they go out into like this place that they suddenly arrived at. There's such a... Yeah, such a violence in, mm-hmm. in, 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 in taking that away. You know, yeah. another thing that really I thought about a lot when, when this all happened was um, there was a show at the Cultural Center. Um, was that at the Cultural Center? Yeah, the Cultural Center not that long ago of those um, enormous um, Keith Haring murals. Oh, yeah. That used to be just in like the walkway at the uh, Midway Airport from the airport to the, uh, um, to the parking lot. Mm-hmm. And it made me, it reminded me of that because the reason that I thought that those murals in that walkway in Midway were there was because it was a collaboration between Keith Haring, but mostly it was like black and Latino kids that painted them and Puerto Rican Mexican kids. So they were just in the fucking parking lot and then they disappeared. But then suddenly they're Keith Haring works and now we're going to have this beautiful show at the cultural center and like take care of them and everything. But like, let's not forget the reason that you ignored them for so long is that you just thought of it as like brown teenagers paint like doing dumb paintings mm-hmm. and it's yeah it's 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 a lack of um of like valid not validation but of, of 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 saying like you guys don't count as much you guys aren't as human you guys aren't as important and it's so violent yeah or that like labor from artists or 
like say younger artists, these like um, interns or something like that, or apprentices, it's like that the work that is valuable looks like something. It always yeah. had like, there's always a connection with POC that it has to look like, I don't know, some kind of cliche expression of who we are. And then we're only able to do yeah, it's this a Virgencita or a Frida or, or, a Frida, or it's not yeah. art. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I, I don't know. I, I have such big issues with that because I'm always like, really? This is like what we're always recognized as? Like, I know. And like so no, much nobody write me any emails, but like Selena's like in a similar sort of space where she's incredible, but like it's sort of like Frida too. Don't it's write like, me emails. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also like Frida, you know? It's this sort of like shorthand so we don't have to think about you. Yeah. When I was in college, I remember writing this essay on... Um, Do you have family members that were extras in, in Selena? I don't think so okay that's a good question for texans because yeah. <laughs> most of them will have how like, a, like yeah you, like yeah how many I have like two in line yeah, to yeah, be yeah. Selena the- they were in that audience crowd <laughs> um no i actually wasn't but um oh what was i gonna mention oh dolores del rio i was writing this essay on dolores del rio and her uh glammed aesthetics as like uh bachuca aesthetics because i was connecting like how women Pachucas were like kind of beautifying themselves and then Dolores Del Rio and trying to connect something other than Frida, other than Selena, other than these like cliches that we're always getting connected to. And it's tough. I mean, there's, yeah, there's a lot of cultural violence in making us invisible, which is like a common theme in this room. And I'm talking about that. Yeah. And like breaking up some of those cliches is also what I'm curious about too, you know? And I think being at the Hana is like one of them. And yeah. like, what does that mean to you? And um, how do our sensibilities connect? How they, how do they disconnect? Yeah. Have you seen Chile's Fronteras? No. Oh my gosh. What is this? It's my favorite film. What is it called again? Chula's Fronteras. It's by Les Blanc. And he, um, he made it in the 70s. And it's a documentary on Tex-Mex music and culture and life. Oh, my God. And it's the most beautiful, it's the most beautiful film. The Siskel actually just screened it um, in the summer. But nice. It's a beautiful film. Um, I showed it in Mexico City. I screened it. And a lot of Mexicanos were so surprised. And they also had this connection of that film to uncles and aunts who crossed. Right. And I loved it. Yeah, because that's another interesting thing. It. Like, in in Mexico City, there's not there's not that many Tejanos. No, there's not. <laughs> Tejano culture is like completely like weird to them. I mean, there's like also there's like the norteños. sort of like the norteño, but yeah. it's also a little bit different. I mean, it's, it's similar, but it's, there's a little bit of a difference there. Yeah, but yeah, I I I, uh, I, I tell people that I self identify as Tex Mex Mex. <laughs> Tex Mex Mex, I love that. Yeah, so like Chilas Fronteras goes through and kind of interviews people, uh, interviews musicians about their identity and yeah. connection to the music that nice. they're playing. And there's this one gentleman they interview in the beginning and he's like, I call myself a Texas Mexican. And he kind of has this Texas accent too. His A's and his vowels are drawn out a little bit. But he's Mexicano, but he's like, I'm a Texas Mexican. And I just love that. Nice. And I'm like, oh, this is great. We all need to watch this film. It's That's like, Yeah, everybody homework. Watch um, Chulas Fronteras by Les Blank. <laughs> So, what has grad school, well, like being done with grad school, what has that been like? And what was that process of really kind of putting all these thoughts that you've sort of gotten and all these influences from all over and suddenly like being like locked in your studio and somebody's like, I'm going to come and do a crit and I'm however long. 
produce. How did that? Oh what was that gosh. like? Oh gosh! <laughs> another I'm common hold, theme in this. I'm holding my eyes as I'm talking to you guys. <laughs> yeah, no. Another common um, theme is just like the trauma of grad school <laughs> and of those like two, three years of just like it takes. I mean, it, like it takes so long to get over it, and it's man. But you know what? I was like, I was ready. I was. Yeah. I I remember applying and thinking like, you know, rip me apart. Yeah. Let's do it. I want to know how I need to be better. I want to know how I need to. What am I up against? Yeah. You know? And why did you pick UIC? I picked UIC. Um, or what was interesting to you about UIC? So when I came to visit, um, Matthew Metzger and Beata Geisler, who are faculty at UIC, mm-hmm. they invited me to visit the school. And Beata had presented this project to me called um, Political Ecology Platform Chicago. And it was a project. It just ended. It was two years. Well, it's kind of, you know, continuing on in in other forms. But it was a project that brought cross disciplines from anthropology, archaeology, history, geography, history. I mean, there was an artist, of course, um, but it was bringing us all together to address climate change. Oh, wow. And the ways in which people experience it and express it. I mean, that might be a a little more general description, but I, I felt like it was kind of addressing the humanity in this um, crisis that we're facing. Mm-hmm. And so there was eight different fieldwork sites that we would um, focus on. And so she presented this to me when I was applying for grad school. And she's like, do you want to be part of this? So it was this like, Cadmo, the anthrop- the, the, yeah. Like, yeah the, the anthropology side was just like, oh, I got to go. I know. This. I was like, I want to abandon all field of this, work. but I have to do fieldwork. <laughs> <laughs> I love fieldwork. Yeah. I love fieldwork. I absolutely, that's my zone. I love it. I love the unpredictability. I love that my schedule will have to change because someone wanted to talk for four hours, not two. I want to travel. I, you know, I I love it. And so, yeah, so she was like, do you want to be part of this and be a graduate research assistant and you'll be working with an archaeologist? And I was just like, yes, absolutely. And they made it happen and they made the money happen the funding, um, our studios were great. I mean, it was it was a good package yeah. for sure. Um, and UCLA didn't have that, so I was like, so "Bye." <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so um, I chose UIC, and man, it was an incredible like two years with this cohort that was beyond. Yeah. I mean, I I felt like my cohort wanted to dig so deep and was committed to the fight and we were all so like raw by the end and like losing it but we man we wanted to stick stick with it and I feel like we were we still are I mean like we're so tight we're still looking out for each other and helping each other one of my uh friends just had a baby so it's like our first baby in the group which is so sweet baby Nino um but yeah, so I chose UIC because of this cross-disciplines I was happening, nice. you know, and that I could take a class in history and that be my elective or take a class even in design and like still feed these interests. Um, and I went in and moving image, uh-huh. which was kind of interesting to me because I went in with a lot of video work from Mexico, but I had just processed this kind of work that I was doing 
which I wasn't even sure what I was doing. Yeah. I was just like, this feels cohesive. I'm going to package it all up and try to talk about this. And, and yeah. And, and then in grad school, I didn't even reflect on any of that work except this writing and concrete. And then it kind of continued on into other, you know, like kind of activities and people's behaviors and, different kind of things. I don't know. Um, giving like meaning to trash and like disposable waste and what was left behind. I was, I was kind of working in printmaking a lot. Um, I felt like all of the work I made in grad school was an experiment just to like, I mean, that's what grad school really should be like, you know, like reflection I feel is like not the time grad school was not the time. Yeah. It's like, just cram. Just I, do as much as you possibly can. You can deal with it later. Yeah. And I think we were all kind of confused about that. Yeah. I think at times, I think I was always just wanting to experiment and try to like figure it out. And the faculty was so good. Who are some of the people in the faculty or just even like uh, people in your cohort that you really sort of feel had a big impact on how you were thinking about things or really helped you out or mentored you? Yeah, I mean, Beata Geisler was incredible. Yeah. Um, She's still so supportive of me. Um, She would always leave my studio or often leave my crits. And she's like, I trust you. Nice. That's a great way to learn something. Holy shit. I think that that was so helpful for me. Yeah. To be entrusted. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. And that also, like, you know, she would say, like, you don't have to testify. You're not, you're not you don't have to defend everything, you know, like it's okay if you don't have the answers. And so I loved that. And, and Dan Peterman was an incredible mentor for understanding space, material, mm. sculpture, the meaning of all of that. Yeah. Um, and he also had a love of building materials of scrap, of recycling, of trash kind of economies that were happening. You know, he's, he was, he definitely shared some sensibilities. Um, gosh, there were so many. Lori Jo Reynolds, she was just like, no bullshit attitude. Sorry, Lori Jo. But like, no. <laughs> I mean, it's true though. But like, she, what an incredible man, person. Lori Jo is an incredible artist for sure. Um, and just an inc- incredible like citizen. Yeah. You know? And, and so fearless too. That's one fearless. of the things also about her. Just like, no, I mean, again, we're going to curse, but no fucks given. Like, <laughs> she is going to get to this. Yeah, I really admire her. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I also admired the staff that maintained that school. Yeah. Um, Chris, Paul, Matt. I mean, so many people that maintained our facilities so that we could have the best space and, like, use what, use what we had. I mean, like, you know, it's... Everyone kind of knows UIC may not have all the facilities, but it's like, wow, we really got far with what we had. And I think it was really great. It was really generous. And um, and my cohort, all of them were so great. I mean, in particular, Stella, uh, Stella Brown, her and I were both interested in disposable landscapes, mm. but she was more interested in the architecture and the building history about the material versus me versus like understanding like the people that were there. So there was, you know, there was was a nice overlap. Yeah, There was a nice overlap critique and also, you know, there was, 
there's all sorts of discussions around that. Um, yeah, it was rigorous. Grad school was rigorous. Grad school was intense. It was it's so intense. And you've been out for not that long. I've I yeah, graduated I mean, hold, May. Hold on, like <laughs> that crash is coming. The crash has happened. It's okay. Yeah, good. I mean this <laughs> this year has been brutal. I'll yeah. be honest, it's been brutal. I feel like getting out of grad school and then i'm also a resident at cac yeah congratulations that's awesome too and congrats and like that speaking of cohorts like what a great cohort that you're part of too yeah they're incredible everyone's kicking ass sorry i keep on cussing that's okay who the fuck cares (laughs) go for it um yeah they're incredible and Teresa is amazing um i really she's so good at her job um but yeah so Going into that and then getting out of grad school, looking for work, compounding all this into That's so difficult. a year. That's so difficult. Like, t- like, cause you're in like this alternate reality for two years and it's like, you forget how to be, you know, a real life person. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. I will say that I just landed a job at Video Data. Yes, Bank, I know. That's... And I'm so happy for this. I love the Video Data Bank. I worked in it they all through grad too. school. <laughs> I mean, that was one of the reasons I came to Chicago and applied to SAC. Oh it was gosh. like just because of the Video Data Bank because they're so incredible. Shout out to Bina and Tom and Shout everybody that out. has been there throughout the time. Like they're Mary, incredible. Emily, yeah, Bridget, Lindsay, <laughs> Tom. So good. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm really happy about that. So I feel like some stabilizing is happening. Yeah. And I'm actually, you know, so my show is in February mm-hmm. and I'm kind of, I was I was talking to my partner last night. And I was like, I think I'm going to be a little funny in my show. Nice. Which is like kind Do of it. not common because my, my work is very like monochromatic. Right. And like quiet, poetic, poetic and serious. Yeah. And serious. But I want to, I, I mean, but you know, okay, like let's take this also with a grain of salt, like playfulness might just be like a color or something right, yeah, <laughs> something yeah. subtle but um yeah i'm excited and i've been um working at this i've been spending time at this chinese junkyard that i've been doing like field work i mean i think a lot of my work is approached through field work yeah. right and so i've just been spending time at this chinese junkyard and um thinking about trash economy what's disposable um, and who are the people that are working there, which is really interesting. The yeah. owners are Chinese. They don't speak English. They don't speak Spanish. The workers are Mexicanos and they don't speak English. Well, they speak a little English, but they don't speak Chinese. So everything is through mannerisms, sounds, Tone. yeah, sound and, and light. Cause there's like lights that flash oh, wow. when to alert, like of a delivery of, you know, of the trucks going out and the wife of the owner uh, created a garden on the side plot. I mean, I do think it's probably really toxic because it's all the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But she created... But how beautiful is that? But it's really so, so beautiful. It's like this one tiny little space and it's like... It's their little kind of enclave of life and what they're doing and what they're invested in and i really love it and there's this little like infrastructure that's happening within them um and now i'm this like they've accepted me as this like absurd artist who's always like jumping in the boxes and trying to search for stuff and they're kind of fine with it um after many visits to junkyards where they wouldn't let me on the lot which in texas you know we can just go and drive on a lot and you 
you know, open the bed of your truck and you load in whatever you want. Yeah. And then you pay whatever. That was my follow-up question about just the idea of access to those spaces and just access mm-hmm. in general. Because when you're working with like anthropology or even if you want to like delve into yeah. like thinking about it as like as like ethnography or like getting all these stories together, totally. there's so much to consider and think about in terms of like how do you approach people, where are the ethics involved in it, and then also how do you protect yourself from situations too? You know, especially mm-hmm. like. Um, as somebody who's not the tallest person in the world, you know, <laughs> it's like when you go into these I'm spaces busy, that are also yeah. like so male and so rough in a way. Um, it's a good question. Um, I think I've abandoned quite a bit of what I've been taught in anthropology. Yeah. And I think that I, I mean, this may sound a little cheesy but I I mean I really do think my intuition is something really strong and I try to figure out who for instance like who is the first person I need to talk to Mm. in the space yeah and I'll kind of you know kind of try to determine who that is um who looks at me who who wants to address me in a direct way and especially like I've been um, in grad school, I was working on this short film about um, La Vaneria Blue Island, which is right across from La Casa and working with the women there, but just shooting 16 millimeter in this space oh, wow. over and I over. I love La I know. They're so Especially great. around there. They're gorgeous. They're full of plants and they're color. And... Full of plants. And they're full. They're, they're run by these women who are yeah. just doing this. Like they're just in this system and it's really beautiful. And their family. And there's so many stories too, not just like the people there, but also like thinking about like traces of history. You know, there's so many like kind of uh, like these weird little products, you know, sort of like quasi medical sort of solutions and like how like faded those things are and how those are like people struggling to kind of like make ends meet and like survive in a Mm -hmm. place. And it's so fascinating to think of those things. And I really like these spaces because there's some resourcefulness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, like the taping of a plastic stool and a seat. Yeah. That's super common. And then I like these spaces because they kind of feel like time travel. For sure. Yeah. And while we're, we are in this kind of, um, fast paced part of society, they're in this other form and still living among this like obsolete technology or these like dispensers that no longer function, but maybe they now use it as like a surface to put a poster up or different, you know, like I like the evolution of these spaces a lot and I'm not sure how to really go into all of that, but I feel like I definitely try to direct myself to these kinds of spaces and try to figure out what could be kind of brought out or highlighted, really. And I think, yeah, ethics is tough. I mean, it's personally, I feel like, I don't know if this is right, but I, I do feel like in the U.S. there's a big concern about who is able to photograph who and yeah. why and where and and these kinds of concerns. And it didn't hit me until grad school to, to really think about that, you know, that what kind of camera do I use? Um, what kind of, um, I mean, it even goes down to like, how do you approach this space? Am I wearing, like, what am I wearing? Yeah. There's so many decisions that go in and, um, 
there's also a concern of like thoughtfulness. Like if I go to this, to this junkyard one week, I think I should show up again within the next two weeks, you know, so that they understand that there's this um, commitment for me too. That's a good point. Yeah. The investment in it. There's and not an the investment. Tourism. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I don't know. I still grapple with, with ethics around it because although I'm not from Pilsen, I feel like, there's something about certain places in Pilsen that I think are important and that are that maybe perhaps without some of my photographs that that those would be lost if they yeah you know yeah if they if they go un, unnoticed. There's a really interesting parallel. I I thought a lot about that in grad school because I was working with um, sort of like hidden communities. I was really interested, for example, in working with. Uh, with queer, queer communities, and especially I was fascinated by um, the visual aesthetics of, uh, of, of gay men who like to fist people and just sort of like playrooms and sex spaces. And there were so many conversations that I had until I basically like talked myself out of the project, really. But um, also one of my mentors in grad, in grad school was Barbara DeGenevieve that also talks so much about ethics and about like your responsibility yeah. and like working with people and what, what role you play as an artist in their mm-hmm. lives. But... Um, yeah, there's something to be said um, about those ideas and thinking about the future, too, when you're documenting things that, in the end, nobody else is going to document. Like, one example that jumps out that's very kind of prescient, right? Not prescient, but contemporary is um, the documentary Paris is Burning by Jenny oh, Livingston. yeah. And how when it was first made, there were protests out, you know, everywhere that it showed. It was this huge moment of, like, what is this woman coming and, like, appropriating our culture and stealing? And, yes, mm-hmm. let's just say it. Like, because she didn't think about those things, she should have paid these people. But in the end, totally. like, that's the only record of these people. And it's completely changed culture. I know. To the point where, like, now now she was, like, I saw that, like, for that TV show Pose that is written by trans people for trans people. It's their stories in a way. It's their hopes and dreams. Like, she was a consultant oh, on that show. She directed at least, like, one of the episodes. And now, like, Criterion okay. is releasing, like an hour and a half of extra footage because then now it's a Criterion collection. Mm-hmm. And like that world and those histories and a lot of those stories, she's the reason that they're still around. But it was only through distance that that discomfort of the ethics of, 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 of documenting were mm-hmm. able to kind of like get themselves worked out in a way. And also I feel like distance does produce some kind of... Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I think about how the like relatability, Yeah. you know, and I think that... Are you talking about temporal or, or physical distance? Temporal distance. Okay. Yeah. I feel like, I don't know. I, I think it's actually, I think it could be an asset, you know, I yeah. think it could be something that makes the project a little bit even more interesting. I do feel like these anthropological approaches in art and visual art making definitely like I think they definitely have to be approached cautiously for sure um and I think you also just have to like know what you know I feel like there's this ethnography gets thrown around so much in art making and I'm like what does it mean to you yeah like what are you really doing with that and what what's what what's your stake in this process yeah yeah and I think we all should be like addressing that as artists I mean we have that's so another much good freedom. point yeah because then you added the sort of the artist side to it because it's uh-huh. not just like anthropology ethnography but also like this in the end is an artistic project this exactly is, like, supposed to be part of like an art rubric or, or or something i don't know yeah the representation is yeah different. the categories of knowledge are so complicated when like an artist is it's presenting something as an artistic project and not just as like primary information 
Yeah, I mean, someone asked me once, like, well, why did you not choose to go to school for anthropology? And it was totally about liberties and freedoms. Yeah. You know, it was that I can approach however I want with this and choose to, you know, represent it however, you know, but hopefully, I mean, that's, hopefully you'll start to see anthropologists doing that too. That's a very good point. And thinking historically about primary documents and how anthropology has worked, often it has been through cultural production and not mm-hmm. through like counting beans or, you know, and, and, and they're this sort of like very clear sort of like ledgers. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting how you'll go to, um, I remember when I was working in Guatemala, how a lot of the women there would cover their children yeah. because they were so used to people coming in, photographing their kids. And, you know, there was this huge, um, child trafficking that was happening this huge movement in the in the early 2000s and they were super protective of their children and covering them and um trying to avoid any camera the camera is so interesting i mean i've made super deliberate choices of what kind of camera i use and you know i i remember in grad school often getting critiqued like you should use a better camera or you should do this or that but i'm rolling my eyes so hard i know i i i still don't I didn't know how to defend myself at that time. I felt like it hit that question. I remember or that comment I remember really affected me because it felt like being reminded that I had to dress a certain way growing up so that I could be accepted into this school or that I had to wear my hair a certain way or I had to express myself so that it was better just taken and received. Yes. And I was, and I, and I just really, yeah, I want to like, I'm glad that that comment was made to me so that I can continue to address that because this, yeah, that was, that was intense for me. Yeah, I can sort of feel like even in you talking about it and I, mm-hmm. I recognize also that pain of suddenly there's this one comment mm-hmm. that sort of meant in, I'm assuming a white person said this, uh, in like <laughs> a way, <laughs> in like this way to like try to help you figure out how you can do things better. But in that process, they sort of expose the fact that they don't trust you. Yes. That you know what you're doing and that you're doing what you want. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think like I... It goes along with materials too. Like thinking mm-hmm. about the materials that are used. You know, if you were using like just even like in terms of like media, but like using like a video camera versus like a film camera or like an HD camera versus like your cell phone camera. But also like the kinds of materials that you use. And you've mentioned trash a lot. Yeah, I th- you know, and how as like an art practice, like there's specific materials that you need to and formals sort of formal considerations that you need to like engage in to be taken seriously that are so much about like what Western culture wants to collect. And also sometimes like I, I feel it, uh, this self-reflection of also what my work is in relation to Latino art. Yes. You know, and Absolutely. um. How do I, I mean, I'm already part of it, but also like, how do I feel part of it? Or how do I, I don't know, thinking about community a lot too for me. Yeah. Well, Um, that's a live thing. I think that we're like creating it, you know? Yeah. Going back to the Frida comment, you know, and the Selena thing, it's, it's something I take very fucking seriously. It's like, we're the ones that are creating that. And like, I very specifically, I'm not going to engage in that because Mm -hmm. I'm trying to like, make artesanias and make like Latino art for the future, not for like the past. Yeah. I think that that's so huge. Um, I, 
I have this small, like this zine that I make called Los Libros del Futuro. Mm -hmm. And it's all about these kinds of concerns of making this print in the anticipation of future loss yeah. or what's yeah. what's being lost. And some of the, con it's, it's interesting how some of, some people, mostly white people, they um, will say, oh, is this from your, is this from Pilsen? And I'm like, no, it's from that's, all of Chicago. That's one of like the microaggressions that I didn't experience until I got here. That is so fucking frustrating because I oh love Pilsen, gosh. but like that's, you know, it's automatically. It's, yeah. it's like, oh, wait, I don't have to think about you. <laughs> yes. It's just, it's, um, I was shocked a little bit, but, um, yeah, it's not even the, the only Mexican neighborhood here. Like yeah. we're in the me Mexican neighborhood right now. Like, yeah. it's not even like, yeah, it's such a microaggression. And it's, I think it's, like, ugh, it's so frustrating. This show in is, is like also anticipating the future and, yeah. and anticipating what is in the archives, what, who is in there, are stories being told? Okay, let me do this myself. Yeah. And I think this can happen in sound and recordings. It can happen in print. It can happen in photo. And I think we really have to be so diligent and thoughtful with all of this because it, it's so tough to have the resources to do this. Absolutely. And even just like going through this process of like grant writing. And I feel like some some people really don't know how difficult this is for us sometimes. It's so hard. You know, like, because we're also not trying to create this like sad story of why we need this funding. You know, it's like, no, I deserve this. Right. You know, and these stories deserve it. And um, I think that this kind of discussion, um, these topics were in discussion in, in grad school. And I think coming out of that and in this like compounding way now, I'm really thinking about not that, I need to be, um, well, that, that I don't need to play a card, right? you know, and, um, and I don't want to play a card and I, and I want the discussion around my work, hopefully being addressed that all of us are going to be anticipating some crazy crisis future. Yeah. It's not, it's like, <laughs> it's coming everybody. It's coming. And also, but, in, and also like, this is our time. Yeah. Like, I'm going to share some thoughts about what I feel in culture and history and in our politics right now that we all know we have all been experiencing this our whole life. Our parents have been experiencing these kinds of injustices. And now we're all able to really start to feel courageous in, in speaking up. And it's and we can do this in so many ways. Yeah. You know? And I think that's such an important thing. I think it's so important for us to really claim space and, mm -hmm. and, and, and demand that attention and, and that um, consideration, too. Yeah, I always used to feel, um, I always have this like Catholic guilt or yeah. something, you know, like of making people feel uncomfortable or, but I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not as concerned about that anymore. You no, know? you shouldn't. Like yeah. get away from that. Everybody, everybody listening, stop it. Stop it. Stop the Catholic guilt. Yes, yeah, stop it. <laughs> Go out and do whatever you want. Another really interesting thing that you mentioned that I want to come back to in terms of like media specificity, when you mentioned that in Crits, you, they, were, they asked you about this camera. One thing I found really fascinating about your work and, for example, the rubbings mm -hmm. and some of the other gestures that you do is that in the way that photography is a trace of something that happens sometimes, but most of the time, especially like in, 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 in sort of like an anthropological or a uh, representational mm -hmm. um, setting, um, there is that equivalency to something real through light. But in your rubbings and things, I sort of see that you're kind of doing the same thing without the camera. It's mm -hmm. like you're taking a, like a, like, uh, you're, you're witnessing 
these things and sort of transmitting them either like through a rubbing or a print or something. It's the same thing for me. I see it in, in, in this sort of a line of like, as the same thing as like as a photographic process. Mm-hmm. And I find that really interesting. So thinking about media in your work is really fascinating to me because it's, it, I see it as a continuation no matter which camera you're using or which system. Yeah. I mean, it's like trying to reveal some kind of image through this, either this process of rubbing or yeah. even through some kind of camera, the media form. Um, have you read Laura Marx's... I love Laura Marx. Loving yeah. a Disappearing Image? Yes. It's fabulous. It's fucking great. And then, yeah, even like the stuff that you did at THC, like with the, the paper on top of the things, like it's it's a trace of something that happened. It's, yeah. it's Yeah. And I find that so fascinating in, in, in the way that you're making these mm-hmm. things and sort of creating these works. Thank you. I, I'm <laughs> right. <laughs> right now I'm making a mold of my truck. Oh, my God. And... My truck's name is Juana. Shout out to Juana. Shout out to Juana. La Troca. La Troca. <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, she's like, she's this kind of symbol for me from home. Mm-hmm. And she's kind of on her way out. And she's getting a little too expensive yeah. to keep up. Oh, wow. So it's like a death mask. It's In like, anticipation. Yeah. And I'm... You know, it's funny, like, I've, I'm just now thinking about this, but I feel like I'm just now able to start thinking about my personal archive and my personal traces. And that was not possible at the time during grad school. Yeah. I just, like, wasn't there. But I feel like something about losing Juana and uh, learning how to make paper, they all kind of you know, kind of combined with each other. And I was using handmade paper to record these names in concrete. Um, but it kind of happened on accident of with Juana. Like I just started to put the paper on top of the truck to dry this summer. And then I was like, you know, why don't I cast, well, it's really a mold, but why don't I make a mold of Juana? Yeah. And so there's also going to be, um, Illinois wildflower seeds, nice. grasses. So nice. I'm anticipating on like leaving Juana in a lot oh and kind gosh. of decomposing and documenting that too. Um, I'm working with uh, Nancy Clem. Do you mm-hmm. know Nancy Clem? I don't know Nancy. Incredible no, artist, ecologist. Um, she does a lot of soil ecology work and she, she taught a course at UIC and it was amazing. She talks about this um, concept of deep mapping, which is actually in an indigenous kind of thinking around uh, land and that it's not a horizontal way of thinking, but it's a vertical. It's thinking about... I think I was talking mm-hmm. to Nicole Marroquin about this. Ooh, yeah. She's she's also one of my favorite artists in town. She's pretty great. Um, yeah, I could see how Nicole's work would definitely relate to that. Um, yeah, so anyway, we're going to be talking about um, this work with Juana and the mold, paper making, soil... Um, and so I'm working with her on particular grasses and seeds and then presenting the work late next year. But yeah. What do you think this interest in like the land and things kind of deteriorating and falling apart, um, came from for you? Do you already know? No, I don't. (laughs) I don't already know. I don't already know, but I feel like, you know, it's, uh, it's, um, we've been talking so much about junkyards and about like things sort of falling apart and sort of like your interest in that. Yeah, I have a big interest in that. I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, 
I think that there is something about, again, the resourcefulness, again, of how to make an image appear from what feels like nothing. I also feel like some of these objects have a lot of life. Yeah. Or had life. I was, when, when Monica was visiting, I was, we were also talking about this the Hana sensibility of like making use of everything yeah, and making do. And, um, I imagine that though, as just being a working class mentality too, I think it all, I think this, um, appreciation of work and labor for me also has to do with my grandparents mm -hmm. and making these and maintaining these restaurants. Um, Oh my gosh, there's so many details of it. And it's funny because right now my great-grandmother's restaurant is going to be demolished. And my family is going through oh my gosh, yeah. this stuff and this land. And the ways in which there were, you know, like even the written notes of like how to move, you know, how to move through the, the restaurant or these notes of encouragement or this way that they fix the table or, you know, these kinds of, kind of makeshift approaches in in keeping everything like still alive still functioning I think is really um also something that is in my mind a lot um yeah I mean I want to think a little more about that the permanence and impermanence of some of these landscapes but also like of the objects and I mean it's a little absurd at times you know like when I think about I've been thinking a lot about these um uh dust like dust writing, like how people write their names in oh, mirrors. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. I love, th I love these declarations that are happening in the street while we're just moving a hundred miles per hour. And then imagining that these people are wanting to express their love for one another or something like that, that no one, I mean, perhaps maybe this woman or this man is never going to see, but that there's these, kind of declarations happening throughout the city and i found this note the other day um i love finding notes on the street oh my god oh i love it and i love the notes that are written on poles and yes sometimes they're prayers sometimes i mean it's it's this like human quality to like like express um your feelings and your thoughts and this like that you that you really don't want to be forgotten that you right that you did put all your life into this, you know? Um, it's like an emotional prosthetic, you know? It's yeah, like, sort of like that's taking a good... this feeling out. But um, yeah. I'm fascinated with like roadside altars, especially in like Me Latin too. American countries. Roadside altars, like small sort of like folk, uh, mm -hmm. like uh, like explosions of, of, of like feeling or history. So like the yeah, those Muertos altars is like one of my like top like experiences. But I love little altars and little things that just happen. These little kind of like magic things that happen. Also, you probably saw a lot of this in Mexico city too, yeah. but like there's just like suddenly there's like in a corner, there's this like magical moment where somebody puts a, a couple of beads and like a saint or something. And uh -huh. there's like a real sort of, it's almost like an animism, but it's not. Yeah, no, That's totally. fascinating. And it is about like claiming your space and sort of leaving these magical traces and sort of like, making this thing and just making it exist in the world outside of you as a proof. Okay. So there's this concept that I really love that I, I learned in, in when I was an undergrad actually. 
and it's called Second Geographies. And Michelle Desarteau kind of talks about this geography that only is encountered through walkers, through people that are okay. walking. And it's this kind of just... Is it related to like situationism derive? Yeah. Okay. A bit. Um, yeah. I, really I love sh- wandering around. That's like the best way to express like experience cities too. Oh my gosh. It's the best. You start I don't get to... plans. I just like, let's just walk. Let's see where we end up. Let's see where the, where the spirit takes us. Yeah. And the nuances of a place. Yeah. I mean, that is incredible to me. And I think that sometimes these little declarations or these little spaces that are preserved for prayer or for well-being or whatever, you know, I think that's a really special encounter, yeah. you know, especially in a society where we're just like, you know, moving. And I think the slowness is important um, to identify these kinds of things. And I think we don't give ourselves that, that kind of time anymore. Um, well, and especially with people like constantly distracted with, their phones or other oh things, gosh, you know, know, it's so difficult sometimes to just sort of be present. I love walking. Walking is a huge mm-hmm. activity for me. And one of my main forms of transportation is partly because of that, because you find all these amazing traces of humanity everywhere. Yeah. There was once where I found a note on, uh, um, a poll over at, um, where is it? It's like blue Island and 18th. It's at the McDonald's right there and this like yeah in that little triangle yeah in the little yeah, yeah. triangle so there was this man who wrote this like incredible poem and faith and then i found another one at western and cermak it's the same writing yeah and you know what kind of writing it is it is the the curly kind of uh yes. writing you find in mexico where it's like uh-huh. the o's has, has like an extra little loop at the top and the t and the j have these loops it's like Oh my gosh, this is incredible. Yeah. This that this man wrote here, he wrote over here. Hey, you know what I was going to say about the, <laughs> you were talking about the altars and the bricks and finding them in these little crevices. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to say, I really love it when I find trash in these little crevices. <laughs> <laughs> trash altar, depends on your POV. Okay, so there's over at what, Western and Cermak is a really interesting yeah. part of town. But so, Just all of Western, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a Dunkin' Donuts right there, and yeah. there's these um, like dispensers for newspapers. And there's in one of them, I looked, and it was clothing that was being stored. It's like a it's like a suitcase yeah. for someone who, and I love that no one touches it. You know, it's just like nope, this is someone's like. I I think that the this again going back to second geographies is that yeah. there's other people who are walking the same space as you and that are navigating it at a very like interesting way and trying to be resourceful and trying to find opportunity in some kind of way when you don't maybe don't have the resources to do that and I oh my gosh I know this like when he opened that and I was walking by I was like oh my god hell yeah I love those moments of just like yeah take it hell yeah when like the the other worlds kind of like break through and show themselves to you and i've also been thinking about like disobedience Mm -hmm. like what is disobedient is that considered disobedient that he's using that magazine newspaper dispenser for his own to protect his clothing i don't know yeah i've been thinking a lot about that or like trying to locate it and identify it when i see it because i think i don't know we're all i don't know 
just like kind of going against the system a little bit, you know? Yeah, well, the system's fucked up right now. Yes, And has absolutely. been for quite a while. Oh my gosh, I just got a ticket for my, my truck. It was oh, like, no. It's three days and it's like... I don't know. It's so it's so expensive. The yeah, way that it's they, ridiculous. They get you. So, um, let's get into some other questions. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you one of the questions that I keep asking people is, um, what was one of your sort of your first experiences of like aesthetics, like aesthetic appreciation, that made you kind of think I can do this or I should do this or that got you thinking in that way? Do you have something that jumps out at you? Weavings. Weavings. Guatemalan nice. weavings. Yeah, I remember thinking about them a lot in, when I was an undergrad because we had that Mayan studies program at UT yeah. and these weavings were incredible. You know, the pr- production of an... I mean, I'm looking at your weavings here. And they're, <laughs> they're beautiful. The, but the production of an image through these fragments or through threading and yeah. was really impressive to me for, for thinking about that. Nice. Who's in your personal canon? And that could be like artists, writers. I mean, we mentioned Laura Marx, for example, but who else like are people that when you're really stuck, you're like, okay, what would so-and-so do? Or how do I, how do I have a a path forward? Is there somebody that you think about in that way? Oh man. For writing, I think a lot about Svetlana Boim, who writes about nostalgia and friendship. Um, I think a lot about actually, um, folk artists nice yeah Yeah, i think about like um oh man reverend dennis in mississippi that beautiful um you know his whole store that he made for his wife and it's just stunning it's like colors of red and pink and yellow and and making it this like cultural site yeah folk art is incredible folk art's incredible um Man, my canon of artists and just creatives and writers in general who drive me. I need to think about that. Laura Marks was incredible for me, really thinking about media differently and touch and um, gaze and things like that. Oh, Do you think about Franz Fanon? I don't know who that is. Um, he wrote a lot about um, basically like imper- colonialism and imperialism. He's the one that came up with the idea that like you can't dismantle the, the, the house of the master with the tools of the master. Ah, yeah. Okay. But also, yeah, he was somebody that like I, I, I okay. thought a lot about in terms of like um, who gets to speak for who also. Oh, that's great. Oh, my gosh. I have to. Yeah, you should look. At, yeah, he's, he's awesome. Yeah, he's going to blow. You're going to get your mind blown. My friends you know, I think about affect, too. Like sometimes yeah. I think some some of the things I'm really driven after is like affect especially like pierre hugh um i really love this use of like other species in the work yeah um and what that does to the viewer um who was i talking about the other day that i was like what is this crazy mess with this trash oh i mean i think also i'm really curious about organizations like rare and philly it's i mean of course, I would love it. It's like you have a residency at this dump site and you yeah. sort through it all, you know. But I'm also like, some people are like, oh, do you love Rauschenberg? And I'm like, meh. What about um, <laughs> one person that really kind of was really uh, Thomas Hirshhorn? Yeah. Oh, my God. Speaking of like. Oh, incredible. Oh, I love his work so much. Incredible. Oh, my gosh. 
You know, a contemporary um, filmmaker that I really admire is Ben Rivers. I love Ben Rivers. His work is incredible, too. Yeah. His work is beautiful. He came out of UAC, right? Did he? No, that was a... No, that was a, no he collaborated with Ben... Oh. Um, Russell. Yes. Who came... From, yeah. Yeah, I, I put them together because they did films together. Ben yeah, and yeah. Ben. Yeah, Ben and Ben. Yeah, I love... Yeah, Ben Rivers' films, films are so gorgeous. Oh, my gosh. beautiful. Yeah. Um, gosh, I feel like I usually would have some people that I'm really curious about. I mean, I put you on the spotlight. It's okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think I'm also like just really impressed in Chicago. There's like, I, I feel like I'm always finding someone else's work that I'm like, what? This is There's crazy. amazing artists that live in this town. Yeah. yeah. And I'm still trying to like figure it out here in relation to, I mean, being in Texas, Mexico City, um, but also witnessing how different it does feel like New York and L.A. are yeah. running and and the things that are coming out of there, the work that's coming out of those cities. What, what are some of the things that you see? Because I, I see sort of in, in, in Chicago, there's there's a lot more references to like ecologies and community. Totally. And social justice in a way, but it's a sort of a different way than, for example, like the work that's coming out of L.A. related to that. It's a social justice that's more about, yeah, community organizing. Community seems to be such a huge part of... Uh, art in chicago i mean when i think about la i think so much about rafa esparza yeah, yeah shout out to rafa i fucking love that guy like the body Incredible. and implicating yeah. themselves is it there's so much risk yeah yeah and it reminds me a lot of asco of the group yeah uh and i think about them you know having lunch or dinner or whatever this tea party in the middle of the freeway and and I, and I think about Rafa Esparza and, and the kind of risks that a lot of artists are, maybe Latino artists are making out there. Um, New York, I never really know. I, I feel like I'm not sure what's... I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> There's, I mean, yeah, there, it's an interesting situation over there. I was having I, a conversation with somebody, even just about like venues for like Latino art. And how there's like Museo del Barrio, but that's like barely there. Mm -hmm. Like there's like the Bronx Museum does really cool stuff. And there's definitely some really cool people working there. For example, Carlos Rosales Silva, shout out to Carlos. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, there's there's not as many sort of figures that kind of jump up as uh, immediately as I, another. I think about, well, it's like I, I like the organization Pioneer Works. And yeah, Pioneer doing, Works does some fucking cool that stuff. That seems yeah. really cool um, what they're doing. I don't know. I feel lucky to be in Chicago. It's a great town. I'm happy to and, be here too. And trying to sort stuff out and also feeling like this city, there's always more to discover. Yeah. You know, um, I've just been spending time in Austin in the neighborhood there and I'm like, what? This is crazy. It feels like it reminds me so much of Jackson, Mississippi in a weird way. It's so strange. I mean, I've been working in, in Mississippi for a project and um, I love it down there i became really interested in this folk artist down there um named bill honey and it's this white man who lives in um outside of greenville mississippi no greenwood excuse me greenwood mississippi and he's an incredible artist who uses pigments from different earth that he digs up and makes these landscape portraits um but it's like when you spend time with him, you're spending time in all of these places in town and you're meeting everybody and you're giving time and you're listening and, you know, thinking that you can only 
that your field work would get done in an hour or something is like ridiculous. Impossible, yeah, because yeah, you got to have barbecue and then you got to oh like have all this food and then you got to, you know, all these kinds of things. And I think it's uh, the the culture down there is just like you can start to see it here in Chicago at times where um, you see traces of it from this great yeah, migration. migration. Yeah, Yeah, so I don't know. I think that there's some interesting relationships and um, I shot bill on super eight oh wow yeah so i'm gonna pre- nice. yeah um develop that film and work on that over the next few awesome. months <laughs> but i love that state i mean i love that the people have made such incredible culture out of yeah having very little yeah yeah for sure i think it's the poorest state in the united states actually it might be i'm not sure i would say my first thought would be either that or arkansas Everyone go listen to Mississippi John Hurt. Do it. Go, li- go listen to some blues. There you go. <laughs> now, uh, going into that, what was some advice or what's some advice that you wish you would have gotten when you were much younger or that you would give to somebody that's much younger than you? I would give advice to, to speak up. Good advice. Because I definitely always got told to, shh, don't say anything. Why do you have to disrupt Mika. something? Why do you have to challenge everything? I wish that I had someone to say, okay, you don't agree with this. Let's talk about how we can address it. That's really good advice. Yeah. And I feel like we don't have a lot to lose, you know? No. What are they going to do? Like I say know. no? <laughs> so yeah, I would say speak up. Feel feel some courage. Yeah, sure. that's great advice. And then last question, and this is open-ended. How do you feel about the internet? I love YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> I love YouTube. Um, YouTube is an incredible site. I, the yeah. internet in general, though, I feel very... I mean, as you know, I'm kind of elusive on the internet. Um, sometimes I feel a little paranoid about it, especially if I'm searching for something on my computer, but then when I look on my phone, I have an ad, uh-huh. and I'm like, this is very concerning for yeah. me. I don't know. It's an interesting question. What I've noticed is that it says a lot about how people are experiencing the internet by their answer because some people might just go up immediately and say like, oh, I can't stand Facebook. And it's like, well, that's just like such a small portion of the internet. Or like, yeah, I have a problem with Instagram. And it's such a small portion, you know, but then it's such an enormous beast, you know? It's huge. And And it's also something that when you think about its accessibility and how it's evolved over the years is incredible. Yeah. I mean... In some ways, almost everyone can get access to it in some kind of way. Where I, where I do remember, like, internet was not so easy to get a hold of, yeah. you know? You could not get a router and do all this, like, the dial-up thing that... I don't know. Um, I love it to stay connected with people. I'm, I'm in connection with people from so far, and I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. Uh, and YouTube is an incredible archive. Oh my gosh, oh my God, it's yeah. incredible. I'm really terrified of how like censorship just keeps increasing on the internet. Oh yeah. Um, I think that you know, especially with, with in terms of like queer content and sexual content, those that's sort of like the canary in the mine of like mm-hmm. um, speech. Yeah, we should be concerned about that. It's for really sure. concerning because it's it, it 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 went from being this like open ended liberatory kind of experiment mm-hmm. to like. Now we're just selling you shit mm-hmm. and you're not allowed to put yourself in it. And that's really kind of terrifying because it's becoming a tool of control. 
Yeah, it's a total beast for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think we have to figure out how to use it and manipulate it in some kind of way too. Yeah, hack the internet. Put yourself in it. Hack it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tamara, thank you so much for coming. Uh, this was such a fucking so great much, conversation. Ivan. So yeah, Chris there to make you feel better about it. <laughs> um, where can people find you? Um, you can find me at Video Data Bank. Video Data Bank, shout out to them. Um, you can find me at the Chicago Artist Coalition. And you can't find me too much on the internet, but hit up my Instagram. It's my name. And yeah, there'll be a link, I'm sure, somewhere on the internet for that. Yeah. But yeah, hit me up. Coming soon to a... Um... Oh, shit. I totally... That was a joke, but I totally messed it up. <laughs> I forgot. I blanked on the word. Coming soon to a... Uh... Shit, where like all the trash is. <laughs> Coming soon to a junkyard near you. Coming soon to a junkyard near you. <laughs> think about what you consume and think about what you're putting into waste. That's it's a good advice, dead. too. All right. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. And there you have it. Thank you for listening, everybody. This podcast was recorded, produced, and edited by me, Ivan Lozano, in Chicago, Illinois. Follow me on Instagram, Ivan Lozano Studio, one word. My website is IvanLozano.net, I V A N L O Z A N O. N-E-T. Thank you to the Propeller Fund for the support. Thank you also to Natalie Murillo, a.k.a. Las Pacer. You can find her on Instagram, SoundCloud, MixCloud, Facebook, and at lastpacer.com. Last thought, thank you all so much again for listening to this podcast, and we will see you next season. Bye, everyone.